Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. 
Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Silver Sea Silver Cloud as we're sailing under the London Bridge, through the English Channel, around it actually, and into Dublin. You know, when you mention expedition ships and you mentioned that Silver Sea's been doing it for 10 years, it's hard to believe it's actually 10 years. It seems like it was just like three years ago, but it's not. This particular ship has now been converted to an expedition ship and will be sailing quite an amazing itinerary along with some of the other ships in the Silver Sea line. And joining me now, the man who knows all the answers about this, one of our regulars on the show whenever I can catch him. He's the chairman and owner of Silver Sea, the distinguished Dr. Manfredi Lefebvre. How are you, sir? How are you, Pete? I'm very good, sir. Uh, This is quite an accomplishment considering where this line was 10 years ago and where you are today. Yeah, you know, actually, I was thinking that 24 years ago, more or less, I was sitting on this same ship along the Thames when the ship just got delivered. So it's 24 years since the company was started. And then 14 years later, we started the expedition segment, which has been going very fast. So and, it's quite... and, and coincidentally, when we left London uh, on this two-day cruise to basically celebrate this accomplishment, we... Once again, the same ship sailed under the Tower Bridge. Yes, exactly. Under now the new profile of an expedition ship. Explain what an expedition ship really is. An expedition ship is a ship which has two things which are different. The first is it has zodiacs on board so that everybody can get off the ship in remote destinations and explore the nature. And the second thing, for example, it can also do ice. So when, when the ship went into the shipyard to be converted to an expedition ship, you had to reinforce the hull? We reinforced the hull. We did the ship practically new. We got eight years of life extension by the Certification Society. It's, it's quite a new ship. The hull is the same, but a, a lot of the things, it's, the hull has been reinforced with steel to become ice class, and uh, a lot of things have been uh, added to the ship. So it's a half-new ship, and it's uh, ice class. So we can go to the Arctic regions. You know, I, I, I've said this uh, on previous occasions. Once last year, I was saying, well, you know, there are about 1,100 ports of call that cruise lines go to. You guys at one point were going to 800. Then it was 900. Now you guys are going to more than 1,000 ports. Yeah, ports, destinations. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, Villefranche Bay is not a port, but it's a... It's a destination. It's a destination, yes. Right. Not exactly a, a an expedition destination, but a beautiful port. Nothing beats the little port of Villefranche. Yeah. But... You're also going to Bangladesh. We go to Bangladesh. We go to a a number of places which are remote. In the Pacific Ocean, up in Russian Far East, Bangladesh. We touch a number of places where normally cruise ships don't go. I've been in many places where there's no cruising activity. You know, when somebody mentions to me the the Kamchatka Peninsula, I remember 1983. That's the first time I ever heard of the Kamchatka Peninsula. And that's when the Russians shot down the Korean Airlines jet, the 747. And... Since then, I've always wanted to know more about it, but nobody was going. I mean, airlines weren't going, cruise lines weren't going. How'd you come up with that idea? Well, you know, we have some genius working for us that has been doing all his life expedition cruising, and his job is his passion, and so he was always looking for new destinations. So he explained to me what it is uh, to go to the Russian Far East, and he convinced me, so we took the chance and we went there. But your audience would probably go, I would think your audience would say, Russia, Far East... They wouldn't necessarily think it was an attractive destination. At the beginning, they're skeptical, you know. So when the first time I was told to go to Russia, Far East, I said, what are you talking about? Russia, Far East. uh, 
And then I, I was explained what I was going to see. And not only I, I agreed on the itinerary, but I booked myself, not one year, two years. And you're visiting the, not only the, the destinations themselves in terms of geographically, you're visiting the villages, the people. Yeah, the villages, the people, the animal life, the, the rivers, the volcanoes. I mean, uh, there's a ring of volcanoes. Now, yeah, the ring of volcanoes, I've actually flown over because there is an air highway now. Ironically, the same highway that air, uh, Korean Air was using when they got shut down that the Russians have now opened up to, to commercial aviation. And when you fly over on a clear day, you're seeing that ring of volcanoes. It's staggering. It's called the Ring of Fire. and For a good reason. Yeah. I also was on a flight once going uh, to, to Hong Kong from Los Angeles, and they fly over the, the Kamchatka Peninsula. And in their flight manuals, they always have a flight manual uh, notification for them. If you have a problem on the plane, what's your alternate airport? Where can you put the plane down at any given time? And the alternate airport where we were... It was a notice to, to Airman saying, don't land <laughs> because the runway's in such bad condition, you'll blow out your tires. Things have changed, but the point is that not as much has changed as you think, which makes it so much more attractive to see. Yeah, but I mean, you go to places that they've never seen a tourist, so. Well, that's the true definition of expedition travel. Yeah, I mean, you go to a place where the animals are not afraid of uh, human beings. The seals, the walruses come close to you to look at you and say, what's this guy? And uh, but really close at one meter, two meters, they're not afraid. The people they look at you, you know, they're not used to seeing uh, people from abroad. Now, what you have to do is to manage all of those expectations for your return visitors so they have the same exact experience. Yes, I mean, you no, know, there's this part of the remote world, the nature remains the same and the people remain quite the same. And Bangladesh, Bangladesh was a very culturally interesting place, you know. There are some interesting things from the point of view of nature, but how society is. I, I didn't go, but I mean, I understand from the people who went there, it was very interesting. But you're a two-timer now in the Russian Far East. Yeah, two times, <laughs> because I'm fascinated by nature. And the Antarctic? Antarctic, I'm going this winter. Arctic, I went immediately as soon as we opened the route. And I'm going again about doing the Arctic proximity to Greenland. Yeah, Greenland is, is phenomenal to me, especially in the summer months, which is really when you want to go. Iceland, of course, is the hot destination now, but if you really want to have a great experience, check out Greenland. Uh, you know, you, you get to the capital city of Nook, and it's just remarkable how unspoiled it is. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing 15 days of Africa and then uh, 12 days of uh, um, Greenland, so... It's, it's nice to be the chairman. <laughs> it's nice to be the chairman, yes. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. Nice to be the chairman. What's in, in the development of the expedition cruises, as you've done this for the last 10 years, what's been the biggest surprise to you that you weren't expecting? I mean, how people who are not uh, the youngest are eager to still have adventures in their life. So, in reality, uh, life is not anymore a limit to the desire of experiences. So that it's not that getting older, you lose appetite for new experiences. To the contrary. You just have to make them more accessible. Uh, yeah, I was speaking with somebody who said, you know, when I was uh, in my 30s, my dream was to have a bigger car. And today, I'm in my 70s, my dream is not to have a bigger car, but to see a new place, and as remote as it's possible. And that's and incontaminated as possible. So and that's how I think. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
My next guest, and I should tell you, to give you a sense of place, this particular cruise is a celebration cruise of 10 years of expedition ships, and we're celebrating a lot of people on this ship, including some of their veteran passengers who spent hundreds of days on their ships doing crazy stuff, ranging from Bangladesh to Antarctica. But we're also celebrating my next guest, who is a record holder for doing something that every time I read what she's done, I go, how did that happen? She is, uh, well, she calls herself a polar explorer, but she's much more than that. Let me tell you this. She is the first woman to ski alone across Antarctica. You want to hear that again? Unreal. This is a journey of about 1,400, 1,500 miles that took 59 days to complete. And of course, she's a Guinness World Book record holder, but bottom line is her name is Felicity Aston. Felicity, first of all, I'm going to ask the first question, followed by the obvious second question. The first question is, why? And the second question we'll get to, which is, how? <laughs> yeah, the why. Well, I mean, it's not like I woke up one day and said, right, I want to ski across Antarctica. And um, this wasn't like a bet. <laughs> no, no. And I was totally sober when I decided to do it. Um, it was a, a gradual progression. I've been traveling. I've been lucky enough to travel in Antarctica uh, for nearly 20 years now. Um, and each time I took on an expedition, it was more demanding, more challenging in one way or another. But when you first went there, under what auspices? Uh, so I first went there as a brand new graduate straight out of university. My very first proper job was with the British Antarctic Survey. So, so you were down there at the station? I travelled down to Rothera Research Station as a meteorologist. So basically, before you got to ski alone across Antarctica, you basically were living alone. I mean, I mean, <laughs> well, that, that not is not alone, not alone but, but in a relatively remote location. Probably yeah. one of the most remote locations you could imagine. Well, I mean, there were times on that station. I mean, you're cut off from the world Especially during that seven-month winter yes. uh, with a small group of 20 or so other people. So there were many times when I wished I was alone because you are in I mean, a very small community. The first time I think most Americans realized what that existence was like was when the female doctor needed to be evacuated because of a medical problem at the worst time. That was at the South Pole, yes. It was yes, at the South Pole, yes. and they organized this amazing rescue mission with lighting the runway with oil cans. And I mean, it was out of a movie, and they did it. But normally, you don't get air service down there at that time of the year. No. You get well, no service down there at that uh, time of the year. Exactly. Even today, there is that winter period where those stations are physically cut off. Now they're much more connected by satellite and things like that. But, um, but physically, you're cut off. Physically, you're still cut off. The, the ships can't get down there, and the aircraft really don't want to go. So on your first position down there. How long were you there? I was there. Well, my first contract was 39 months. Excuse so. me? <laughs> Who did you so, piss off? Exactly. So I turned up there in uh, December of 2000, and I didn't leave Antarctica again until April of 2003. And that was standard at the time. That was the standard contract. And I was, I'm going to ask an obvious... And what lessons did you learn? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I don't think I realised at the time how useful that experience was or would turn out to be for putting together my own teams in the future. And I've put together expedition teams in the years since. Uh, you know, so often when things have happened, and I've thought... I recognise this. I recognise what's going on because I saw it in those years down in Antarctica in a small community, how people break apart and come together and, you know, just how odd human beings can be. <laughs> well, you are certainly a either a victim or a beneficiary of a harsh environment. Yeah, I mean, that was the other thing was that, you know, there were days where, you know, I didn't just get to visit Antarctica. I got to live there. And uh, so I saw it on days when I would rather have been anywhere else in the world, quite frankly, and days when there was nowhere else in the world I would rather have been. How many books did you read during that time? 
<laughs> oh, you know, I didn't count them, but uh, it uh, there was lots of challenges. But I think you know the privilege definitely outweighed those. I mean, I would think that Antarctica over that period of time would be the the capital location for self entertainment. <laughs> I mean, because you don't have many choices. Uh, it's an odd, you know, you have to be very good at being in your own company, but you also have to be very good at living closely with other people because not only are you working with them, you're seeing them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You're socialising with them. In so the you bar better be friendly. So even if it's someone you really can't stand, you, you have to find you a adjust. way. <laughs> yeah, if there's anything work. that you know, my my father once told me, it's not about winning or losing or being right or wrong. It's about adjusting. Nowhere do you have to do you have to adjust more in that kind of environment than there. So. You first went down there as a legitimate member of the British station in in Antarctica. You just woke up one day and said, get me a pair of skis, I'm doing this? (laughs) Well, I mean, when I finally left Antarctica in April of 2003, you would have think that I wanted to go somewhere nice and hot and sunny maybe for for a while. But in fact, my brain was just full of how am I going to get back into the polar environment? I want to see more. I want to see what's up north. How does it compare to what's down south? And because when we we talk about a polar explorer, we're not just limited to, to Antarctica. No, I mean, I've been very fortunate to um, see lots of different parts of the Arctic, ranging from the Canadian Arctic right the way across Siberia. I've done quite a lot of traveling in Siberia. And, you know, the Arctic is an incredibly diverse place. Um, But each expedition that I put together, you know, my heart and my mind would be trailing back to Antarctica. How was I going to get back there? And so eventually I started putting together my own expeditions to Antarctica. And then that led to this? Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember I was leading an international team of women uh, to the South Pole in 2009. I remember when it was my turn to lead the team. So we took it in terms to sort of navigate at the front of the line, skiing in single file. And when it was my turn, I'd be navigating and trying to imagine that there was no one behind me and trying to <laughs> picture what it would feel like to be in that incredibly empty and monotonous, albeit wonderful So basically what you're saying is, is that 39 months in one station and for the British wasn't enough for you for being alone. You really wanted to be truly alone. Yeah, I was curious, you know, what would it feel like? What would it feel like to not have the support of those people around me? How would I react to that? And there was only one way to find out. Okay, so how did you prepare for this? Uh, well, I went to see a sports psychologist, and he yeah, I taught seen a, me. I would have yeah. seen a, I would have seen a sports psychologist. <laughs> well, one of the things I was really worried about was that I'd seen how you know when people get affected by things like hypothermia, um, you, they're always the last people to realise something is wrong. It's the people around them that you say, "Oh, you're being a bit bizarre. You're but being be a nobody bit unusual." You. Um, but you know, so how would I know on my own whether I was making the right decisions or not? And uh, how many and people tried? Said, how many people tried to talk you out of this? Well, I mean, his answer almost taught me out of it because he said well the thing is Felicity if uh, you experience something and on some level you know it's not real then you don't have a clinical problem <laughs> but if uh, if you can't tell between what's real and what's not real anymore that's when you're yeah. and really then, of course, in trouble. You're really in trouble for two reasons. One you figured it out you're in trouble the second there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> well I mean you know in actual fact what happened was that you know when that plane first left me I just got hit with this sudden realisation and all of those tools and techniques all of that preparation just suddenly seemed totally inadequate. Okay, you're standing there by yourself with your skis, your pack, your supplies, and the plane leaves. You know at that moment it's not coming back. Mm. And it, it was just a shock. I, I went into shock. It, just that sudden weight of isolation, of knowing just how far away the nearest help and was. And the three words you, you used in the form of a question were, I did what? <laughs> But the bottom line is, is that in that situation, what are you going to do? You know, that that plane, it would take at least a week of logistics in order to get that plane back 
to where it's just dropped you off. So they're not coming so, back. So in a was hurry. there a plan saying, okay, when I get to where I'm going, I'll call you? Yeah, I was obliged to make a call once a day uh, using a satellite phone. And How did the, you charge the, the satellite phone? Net, was it solar? Uh, solar panel, solar. yeah. Uh, the benefits of 24 hour daylight in the summer in Antarctica. But the plan was that if they didn't hear from me in any 24 hour period, they would come back to my last known position, um, which that sounds pretty secure as a safety net, right? But yeah. actually, when you start to think about it, you know, I set off in the morning skiing. I'm four hours ski away from my last known position. If I fall into a crevasse or something, not gonna I've got to wait 24 hours crushed in this little crevasse well, until they come of, back to look for me Speaking of little or slightly larger crevasses, how many did you dodge? Well, you don't know. This is a scary thing about it is that you can't see them from the surface. So you know you're crossing crevasses, but you just can't see them. Some of them you could see. Um, some of them I would avoid. Um, but, yeah, the majority of them you will never know. So would you look at yourself as an incredibly lucky woman? I'd like to think there was a bit more than luck into it. But if you can't see the crevasses... I know, there were days when, I mean, I remember one morning in particular, about 10 days before the end of my journey, I was having my morning cup of coffee, and I remember watching the surface of the coffee shake and realising it was my hand shaking, because I knew I was near an area of crevasses that they could see from the air, and I knew the visibility was terrible, so I absolutely wouldn't be able to see anything, and I was petrified. Well, speaking of that, how many whiteout conditions did you get? Oh, pretty much every day. I mean, there were certainly Felicity. more days than... <laughs> All my photos show blue sky, and that's because on the days when it was white out, I just didn't have the mental capacity to get the camera out and take pictures. Okay, obvious question number nine here. How did you stay stay? How did you stay sane? Um, I, you know, it was funny. It was uh, I, suddenly I had no filter on my inner emotions. If I was angry, I got furious. If I got sad, I was tears streaming down my face if I was having a great day I was euphoric um, and so it was really you know quite a an emotional time and that's how I got through it was and just did you have any that. idea it would take 59 days or did you think you'd, fi you'd finish it earlier no I thought I was going to take a lot longer I'd estimated 70 or so days after 59 days you made it right dodging every known and unknown crevasse whiteout conditions Mood swings. I could say mood swings, can I? <laughs> yes. A lot of mood accurate. swings. Yep. And then they came to get you, but they didn't. No. So I had one last night alone with Antarctica, and I think I was very grateful for that, actually. It gave me a bit of a buffer between just being me and Antarctica, as it had been for the last two months, and then sort of preparing for seeing people again and how that was going to be. At any time during that 59 days, did you want to give up? Oh, every single morning. The very <laughs> first thought that went through my mind was, I can't do this. I'm not the person to do this. So but, the first struggle every morning was finding a reason to get out of that tent. And that became my daily challenge was getting out of the tent. Well, let's talk about that. Every day when you were finished, you'd have to pack, you have to unpack the tent, set it up, right? Hope mm -hmm. the solar chargers had been working that day, mm -hmm. right? So you at least eat and have a, a nice hot cup of coffee and then go through the same ritual the next morning. Yeah. Right. And, and we were talking before about how I got through it. And I think one of the big things that helped me was that I was meticulous about routine. It was routines for everything. From the moment I opened my eyes, I would just go into this routine that was exactly the same every day. And so it sort of carried me through it like a like a robot rather than allowing myself too much emotion. If I allowed myself to stop and think too much about what I was about to do, about what was waiting for me outside of that tent, I would never have got through the door. 
So I had to you know, take that emotion out by just becoming very robotic about my routines. You know, when you talk about expedition ships going to the Antarctic, there's no place to stop for fuel. There's no place to stop for, you know, extra beer. I mean, they have to, they have to plan for every possible contingency. So how many backups did you have? You didn't just have one solar charger, right? Uh, yes, I did only what? have one solar charger. Um, but you have, you know, you weigh up all the risks. I mean, a lot of people think that to do this, you have to be some kind of thrill-seeker, adrenaline junkie. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. You have to be someone who sits down and makes list after list after list, who thinks through all the possibilities, all the what-ifs. Why and wouldn't so, you have a second solar charger then? Uh, because, you know, I backed it up with, OK, I have a spare battery. Uh, you know, if the solar panel days. goes... How long do you think this, my cell phone battery dies in 40 minutes? I have, you know, other things that could maybe do the same job. So it was all about weighing up, the, weighing up could the weighing up the risk. Could you crank a little electricity too? No. Nothing like that. No, no. And then the chances of the solar panel going wrong in the first place, you know, it's also based on a lot of experience of previous expeditions, okay. what is likely to break and what is not likely to break, and then choosing the right kits. Well, that you realize now that right on television right now on CNN, there's an advertiser for DHL talking about the fact that their solar charger didn't work and they and they, and they had to file it, fly it down to Antarctica and they almost didn't make it. I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, you make these decisions at the time to the best of your ability and you may live to regret them. Luckily, you know, I haven't made too many bad decisions that have cost me too dear. And what were the temperature ranges? I would not know because I did not carry a thermometer because the thermometer is not essential to success or failure. So I didn't need it in my sledge. I had to keep that weight down to absolute minimum. Okay. But I do know, How I do know <laughs> when I arrived at the South Pole, they told me it was minus 38. And I know that that felt like a warm day considering what I'd just <sighs> been through up on the highest parts of my journey. Because a lot of people think Antarctica is flat, but parts of my journey were well over 4,000 metres. So at that point, you know, it's really bitterly cold temperatures. So I was well down in the minus 40 somewhere but uh, centigrade, which is the same as Fahrenheit, actually, minus 40. Um, but, you know, I don't know precisely how cold it was. And I'm not even going to ask you what the wind chill factor was. <laughs> You know, that's not even worth working out. I just know that, you know, it got painful cold. You know, when you get to the point where, you know, if you stop, if you pause, you're in pain within, you know, a minute. Okay, you here know, comes a stupid really question. Cold. I understand constant energy to keep your body temperature going. Mm. But what about at night? How many layers were we wearing? Well, again, that's down to having good kit and knowing how to use it. So sleeping bags, for example, a lot of people think, oh, to keep warm in my sleeping bag, I've got to put loads of clothes on. But that stops your sleeping bag working. So, you know, it's about knowing how to best use your kit so it's as efficient as possible and it keeps you warm. I had really good sleep <laughs> all the way across, yeah. I promise you. But if I had uh, done what you'd done, or I should say if I had attempted to do what you'd I would have had really good sleep. I would have died. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody attempted it since? Yes, yes, people have uh, attempted to go across Antarctica alone, and uh, you know there's been some tragedy in some of those uh, some of those expeditions. But it, I think it's you know the wonderful thing about Antarctica is that it is a place where people are still pushing those boundaries. And you know so many people say, oh, there's nothing left to discover, there's nothing left to do. We've seen it all, we've done it all. And just look at Antarctica; there are still people down there pushing that envelope. Well, so. speaking of that envelope, you were there for 59 days. What did you discover? What did I discover? Yeah. I discovered that the sun is your friend. I spent a lot of time talking to the sun, and the sun talked back to me. So the sun is your friend. Well, wait a <laughs> and what did the sun say? Well, some days the sun uh, was very encouraging, and other days the, the sun gave me some tough love and was like, you know, Flisty, stop whinging, just get on with it today. So, uh, yeah. But in terms of the actual location and topography, what did you discover? 
Mm. I think, um, you know, I learned that Antarctica is a, is a place that is both beautiful and terrifying at the same time and what it really taught me was not only just how tiny we human beings are and the scale of nature on our own planet never mind everything beyond but also how fantastic we are that we are surviving we are doing things on this planet when faced with that force of nature and I think you know we don't celebrate the success of the human race enough we're very good at beating up the human race for all the things that we've done that have not been done right but we also sometimes have to remember that we're pretty ingenious and uh, that's why I believe that all the problems we've created on planet earth we have the power to resolve because we're an extremely clever species and uh, we have the power to do it. Except for that one crazy woman who decided to ski alone across the <laughs> But here I am, here I you did are. it I, I know. survived if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, when I think of, um, of expeditions and I think of, well, for example, whale watching, I, I guess I'm sort of stereotypical in my, in my response. I don't necessarily think of London or Ireland as great whale destinations. I'm thinking the Mexican coast up in Vancouver, uh, Asia Pacific, Hawaii, and yet there are a lot of whales here, but most importantly, it's the partnership that Silver Sea has with Orca, a, a great conservation society and charity based in the UK, focusing, of course, as its name implies, on uh, on the protection and the educational experience of, of whales. And joining me now, Lucy Baby, who's the head of all conservation for Orca. Thanks for, for coming. Hello. Uh, whales in Ireland, huh? I know. People often think they've got to travel to the other side of the world to see whales and dolphins, but we do have them right here on our doorstep in the UK. 25 different species have been recorded in total, but we see about 14 to 15 species regularly every year. And so hopefully we'll be able to show guests some of those animals on this voyage to Dublin. Well, forgetting just showing it to them, it's about educating them. It is. Right? Because there are so many different kinds of whales. Some of them are more challenged than others or at risk. There is a story today uh, which speaks of, of so many other problems environmentally of a whale dying after eating how much plastic? 80 plastic bags in its stomach was found. Um, the oceans are under a lot of threat, not just our whales and dolphins, but of course all marine animals. Well, I remember years ago on Midway Island uh, in the Pacific, uh, for those people who don't know where Midway is, its name, as its name implies, it's Midway between San Francisco and Tokyo. It's the site of the most decisive naval war and victory in the history of the world. But what was really troubling to me, because if you really want to investigate wildlife, Midway's a great place to do it because you're not surrounded by, there's no over-tourism, there's no tourism. Uh, the U.S. Navy left, and now it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife running it. The island is overrun with wildlife, and, 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 and like goonie birds as well. But here's the sad part. As you walk along the beach, you will see dead birds that will wash up, and, and they're in different forms of decay. And as their stomachs open up, what are you seeing inside? Plastic lighters, six-pack beer holders, all this plastic stuff that it's so uh, 
disheartening when you realize it's so avoidable. It really is, and that's something that Orca really prides itself on, as well as collecting this vital data, and it's through partnerships like with Silversea, being able to collect the information on the whales and dolphins. It's also about educating members of the public with what they can do, little changes in their life that can make a huge difference to the whole of the oceans across the globe. Such as? Reducing your use of plastics well, is the go. top one. Simple things such what, as... Like if you're going to get a six-pack of beer, cut the little can holders in half. You or know. choose the beers that aren't connected by the plastic you exactly. can do that um plastic straws say no to them when you're out having a well, drink I'm, I'm now noticing a number of cruise lines we're on a cruise line mm-hmm. that have eliminated them yes and there's those little things plastic bags plastic straws plastic cups who needs which a plastic stirrer do. anyway come on exactly yeah but you know what when you start adding up the the sheer volume here mm. then it gets scary it really does. And if you are walking along the coastline, do your own little litter pick. Pick up the discarded bits of plastic so they don't wash back into the ocean. We can all make a real difference. Are you seeing any changes that are making you feel better about the whale population? We are. There are some whale species that are thriving. They're really recovering well. The humpback whale is one of those. And actually on the voyage with Silver Sea, Uh, Only a couple of weeks ago, we were seeing hundreds and hundreds of humpback whales going up the west coast of America on their annual migration. That's between California and... uh, And Vancouver. And so the humpback whale is doing really well. And here in the UK, in the English Channel, we are getting more sightings of humpback whales. They're starting to come back, which is a really good sign. Where are the problem areas? Globally, there's lots all around the world. I think the one top of the list at the moment is going to be the poor vaquita so the smallest porpoise in the world which is in the sea of cortez in mexico it's now reported there's less than 12 individuals left that's it yes all to do with being accidentally caught in in, the nets yes illegal fisheries and there's been lots and lots of work over the past decade to try and reduce that but unfortunately it hasn't worked i mean you know Many of us are familiar with the work at Greenpeace and what they've been doing, you know, the the so-called Japanese quote-unquote research vessels, which are not really research vessels at all. And there was a report only a couple of days ago where um, Japan, with its research permits, over 300 minke whales taken, and the majority of those were, in fact, pregnant females. Oh, boy. Which will have, obviously, a devastating impact upon the population. How It's one thing to educate people about what the problems are, but then how do you actually move forward to retrain everybody to change the basic core of the business that drives the problem in the first place? It does come down to money, the economics of things, and there's lots and lots of examples around the globe where ecotourism, showing the worth of these animals alive yes. and getting people out there to see them, these animals, when you're talking about whales, they can live for well over 100 years. So if you're getting tens of people out every single day on vessels to see them, then that's obviously going to get far more revenue than what the worth of their, their meat or something is. Well, you know, we did a, a one-hour special that's on PBS right now, on the Royal Tour of Rwanda. We were spending a lot of time with the president and, of course, the, uh, with the mountain gorillas. And they had the same challenge, to convince the poachers to change their entire... So many of the guards right now and the rangers are former poachers because they had to convince them that these animals were worth, as you just said, worth more to them alive than dead. And when you can actually reorganize the economic model so that the people who are coming to visit are actually putting money back in their economy and they can actually see and connect the dots, you got hope. 
And there's lots of examples with sharks that where this has worked very well, re-educating small villages that instead of killing the sharks for things such as shark fins for the soup, they can actually take people out to see them. But you've got to work very carefully when you're dealing with cultures and things that people have been doing for many, many years. So it's well, not a quick process. Although, you know, you can start at the lowest level, which is I saw this happening in Hong Kong about five years ago, where one by one hotels, then followed by restaurants and hotels, followed by other restaurants, said, okay, we are no longer serving shark fin soup. You yes. know, all of a sudden, they, the, the demand level then dropped. And I think that's where us as members of the public, if there's not the consumer demand there, then there's no need for it. And that's where, again, if we change small things in our daily lives and choices, make the correct choices, then that can have a knock-on effect and a really good impact upon the oceans. How do you then work with Silver Sea with their passengers to make that happen? We have, so the partnership with Silver Sea they're enhanced whale watching voyages but it's more than just showing the guests the animals giving them a fantastic experience two orca expert wildlife guides are on board and we're there to give interactive workshops with the guests as well as covering education so such as the correct choices the impacts the threats to the animals but it's about giving guests those skills those techniques and the knowledge to become citizen scientists. So their actions, the animals that they are seeing on the voyages, the data that they are collecting is actively used to conserve these animals. They have an active role in conservation, and that's something we can be really proud of. Well, you call them citizen scientists, so you're putting them to work. We are. <laughs> if they would like to, they can obviously sit back with a coffee or something a bit nicer and just enjoy the whales and dolphins, but everyone has been so engaged. They actually want to take it that step further and make a difference to the marine environment. And what have been the surprises for you on these trips when the passengers do get that up-close-and-personal experience? There has been some incredibly emotional experiences. For example, only, I think, 10 days ago, we showed a guest their very first whale. It was a lifetime ambition of them to see a whale in the wild. They'd seen them in captivity before, but, of course, it's not quite the same. And we showed the guest their first whale. There were tears with joy, and it was a really magical moment. With the guests, there can be a few hundred people that you can show these animals to, but it's when you get those one-on-one -on -one personal experiences, you can make a real difference to somebody's life. They said it's an experience they will never, ever forget. And of course, since so much of travel is storytelling, they get a chance then to come back and tell that story. They do, and what a lot of people have said to us is, well, now when we go on our next cruise or when I'm on my own boat or walking along the shoreline, I know now what to look out for, the signs of when there's an animal in the water and then how to recognise if it's a whale or a dolphin. Well, help me out. When do you know when there's an animal in the water? <gasps> there's lots of things to look out for. Splashes, really good sign of dolphins. They tend to jump out the water. So any white water out there, have a double look. With the large whales, of course, these animals are mammals, just like you and I. They, so they breathe. They need to breathe. And when the large animals do that, they cause a big sort of blow, a spray up in the air. You can see that right onto the horizon. Gives an indication of the size of the animal as well. We've been talking to Lucy Baby, who's the head of conservation for a great charitable group based in the UK called Orca. And as its name implies, they're watching out for whales and other certain animals of the sea. We're on a ship right now. We're cruising, as I said, between London and Dublin. I'm looking out the window here. It's a pretty big shipping lane. We, we passed a lot, a lot of ships with so many ships in the water. You know, I know the ocean's big, but these are shipping lanes. How does that impact the whales? 
The ships do have an impact on our whales. One, the noise that's created. So some of our whales and dolphins, they use something called echolocation, similar to bats, to navigate around their environment. Don't the dolphins do that too? Yes, so all of our toothed whales, so the dolphins are in the toothed whale category. Yeah. And they use that for communication, to find their prey. So they send a click out in the ocean, it hits an object, it comes back to them, and they can actually work out the size, the shape, the density, the speed, and even the colour of the object. But of course, if there's a lot of noise around, that's going to impact how well they can navigate and find their food. Also, there is the risk of collisions with the large whales and the ships. And Orca is working on a unique research project to investigate how large whales respond to large vessels. We're working with numerous bridge crews, numerous shipping companies, the Chamber of Shipping, to investigate this further to try and minimise the risk. But if the, if the whales have this great echolocation facility, if you will, the ability to do this, you would think they would know a little bit ahead of time what's coming at them. Yes, so with our toothed whales, they tend to not be the ones hit by the ships so often, but our baleen whales, the ones that don't have teeth, they don't have echolocation. So they tend to be the ones that end up, sadly, hit. And it seems to be juvenile individuals, so whether they haven't quite developed their spatial awareness, we're not quite sure. But there's lots of mitigation measures that can be done. Education of bridge crews, which we're working on, so you can identify the whale understand its surfacing sequence and make that decision whether you divert the ship, you slow down. But what we're looking at is, is it the whale making that decision? We've seen lots of examples. I've been on the bridge of a ship when there's been a few large whales ahead. We've been discussing what do we do with the vessel and the whale actually turns on its side and it seems like it has a little bit of a look at the vessel. There seems to be a panic moment where it swims round in circles and it makes a decision what to do. So that is our sort of innovative research project that's happening right now this year we did a pilot one last year we'll be out in the ocean this summer working with Brittany ferries in the bay of biscay it's one of the busiest shipping lanes there's a huge number of these large whales fin whales out there to try and work out well actually do we just slow down do we need to divert shipping lanes or do we allow the whales to make the decision of what to do i mean there's the law of physics as well that it's more difficult to divert a ship than it is to divert a whale i mean it takes them a while they you know you got momentum and you've got inertia uh you know stopping a super tanker can take three miles and that's the thing there's some vessels which more likely to be involved in collisions the much larger ones they have less maneuverability right and it's found that the ships beyond a certain length these large sort of freight vessels and tankers whether the whales can't quite work out how long the ship is we're not quite sure yet this is brand new groundbreaking research right. and we're really excited to see what comes of it okay i'm going to throw something at you that just came to mind and that is if they've got such great listening ability talk about the whales mm-hmm. right they can actually send the signals out and get them back what's to prevent coming up with a signal that can be sent up from the ship that the whales can then recognize after a period of time and realize, stay away. This has been looked into and it is in fact something the Orca got involved with when we first started doing our ship strike work. However, a deterrent and a noise for one species seems Ah. to attract another one and with an environment with so much noise already in it, lots of threats facing our whales and dolphins, do we want to be adding even more to that? 
You know, I knew I knew you'd have an answer. I just, <laughs> but that becomes another problem then. It does. It really does. And so it's looking at the bigger picture. And we still don't know much about the oceans. It's on our own planet. We know more about Mars than we do our own oceans. And that's what makes this work so vital that Orca's doing, but also makes it so interesting and exciting. And then last but not least is how the public gets involved, especially in the areas of, of whaling. You know, I, I spent some time in Iceland, and you can see it right in front of you. There, on one level, I mean, you go down the, the, to the harbor, there are boats to your left and boats to your right. And the boats to your left are whaling boats, and the boats to, the right, to your right are whale-watching boats. And like, hello, can't you guys figure out that whale-watching is better than whale-killing? And the guys on the right are making money, too. So we got to figure out, how, can you legislate it, or it's just about following the money? So I think in this circumstance, I think we can, it's slowly getting there. So it is illegal as such to whale, but there are some countries that still participate in it. So there's the moratorium for whaling that lots of countries signed up to. However, Iceland and Norway still participate in whaling and they have quotas each year. And Japan still does whaling with its scientific permits. And there's also then the subsistence whaling for small uh, communities. But it seems that we've been in Iceland recently that members uh, people that live in Iceland they're not eating the whale meat they don't like it so there is that cultural change that is happening and it actually the meat gets shipped elsewhere in the world Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Joining me now the uh, the cruise editor of Travel Weekly Tom Steekhorse, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Peter. You know, it's it's hard to believe they've been doing this 10 years. It almost seems like they did it yesterday. It kind of snuck up on, on us, yeah. They, they started out small with one ship, 112 passengers, I think. And uh, they, they've slowly added to it, and now they've taken this ship, which was their original ship at Silver Sea, their original luxury ship, and converted it to an expedition ship. So they're really uh, uh, becoming a force in the expedition cruise market. And let's go back to the first days of expedition ships. They were, they were basically barely converted research vessels that had somewhat Spartan accommodations. And you, you, know, you did the Antarctic or you did the Galapagos or you maybe went up to the, to the Arctic. You weren't there to be pampered. Uh, it took a different kind of passenger to want to do that. Those days have changed, too. Yeah, I think they have. If if, the, if your choice is not to do it that way, you, you have new choices that you didn't have in the past. Now, there are still lines that will do it in the bare-bones way. And, right. And, uh, but uh, a, a line like this will, will give you the expedition part of the equation, going to very exotic locations, very re- remote places with great wildlife, and they'll give you a, a good meal and a hot shower and, and, a, and a nice, comfortable cabin. And there are more of them now. Uh, it's unbelievable, really. I mean, I think that there was a, a, a story the other day that said that there's 28 expedition-style ships now uh, in construction, uh, which is a, a huge number. And uh, uh, new lines, old lines that are building new, a uh, combination of both. So, so you really have a, a kind of a bewildering set of options now. Well, that's happening throughout the cruise industry, not just on expedition ships, but on, on ships in general. I mean, every... every um shipyard is operating at about 100% capacity now. If you wanted to order a ship right now, you'd have to wait four years just to place the order. I mean, that's significant. It is. It is. The, the big ships, uh, you know, you're talking about delivery in 2024, 20, 25 now if you order it today. I think that's one of the keys to the growth of the expedition market, though, is that 
that because they're so much smaller than the Carnival and the Royal Caribbean type ships, they can be built in different shipyards than Carnival and Royal build in. And so they've had uh, the opportunity to go to some of the smaller shipyards in Europe and get these ships built in a reasonable time schedule. And then, of course, where do you place these ships? What kind of itineraries do you give them? And, and how innovative can you really be? So uh, there's a couple of standard places that they go. One is the Galapagos Islands. A uh, number of, of expedition cruise lines have been mining that field for, for a while. Uh, the other obvious place is in the polar regions, either in the Arctic or the Antarctic, uh, you know, where the sort of a, a idea of expedition uh, really originated. And uh, wh wherever the big guys aren't, uh, I think that uh, Silver Sea has made a big uh, itinerary out of the Russian, uh, the Pacific Northwest of Russia. The Russian at, Far East, actually. The Russian Far East, and, you know, you're certainly not going to take a carnival cruise to that area of the world. Or if you did, I don't know if anybody would remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but seriously, that's that's a big deal. It, it, it's a big deal. It, it really gives people who've done a lot of what contemporary cruising has to offer something exciting and something different to go on. And, and I think that the, if you're in the expedition cruise business, you're really counting on the fact that a lot of people have been exposed to cruising. There's 27 million people, I think, this year that are going to be uh, on a cruise ship of some sort or another. So they may have been on, on two or three or five cruises, and now what? Uh, so the expedition ships are giving an answer to that question, now what? Well, let's talk about those numbers, because I keep getting different responses to how many people as a percentage of the U.S. population have ever been on a cruise. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's less than 5% in uh, every year. If you took all the people that are going on vacation and said, how many are going on a cruise, it's less than 5%. Some of those people do a cruise every year, some of them every other year, maybe once every 10 years. Um, and there's some people that are never going to go on a cruise. They're they're going on a ski vacation every year or whatever. But but I think that uh, there's more and more people that are open to the idea that in the past might have written it off as kind of something phony or artificial and, and it really a uh, confining experience. And expedition, I think, helps the cruise industry give the feeling that there is something really authentic and uh, not contrived about going on a cruise. And the demographics are changing. Well, yeah, and this is, uh, you look at a line like Silver Sea, uh, their luxury product is really marketed primarily to retired people, to older people, and eventually those people pass on, so what do you do about that? One of the things that, that works about having an expedition line associated with Silver Sea Cruises is that it's a younger demographic on the whole. So you, you, you bring people into the product, the, the brand name, by going on the expedition cruise. At an earlier part of their lives. At an earlier part of their lives, right, and they, and they, they enjoy that. And, and then they get exposed to whatever else Silver Seas offers in the way of service, in the way of food quality, so on. And then they may, at a later stage in their life, say, oh, well, Silver Sea, I've been with them for a long time, so I'm going to stick with them when I do a luxury cruise. And how much weight have you gained on this cruise? <laughs> I don't want to think about it. <laughs> uh, what's coming up next in the expedition area? Because you mentioned the 28 ships. Uh, do you reach a point of, of uh, diminishing returns? It's a really good question. Uh, I think that there is a certain amount of excitement about expedition that that is marketing generated. People like the idea of going on an expedition cruise. I think there'll be a certain number of people that that go to Antarctica, and whether they want to admit it or not, it's too cold and too icy for them. I mean, this is an extreme environment. 
Um, and so, so there, there may be um, a little bit of a pullback uh, coming down the road sometime when, when there aren't as many people that really want to do this type of cruise as they, as they may think they are. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest, someone who is not a stranger to cruises, not a stranger to travel, she's the travel director for Travel and Leisure and Departures, Jackie Gifford. How are you? I'm great, Peter. How are you? Good. So, Expedition Cruises. Yes. I mean, that's it's 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 sort of like, it's no longer the flavor of the month, it's like the flavor of the decade. I know. It's really, we've been seeing such a tremendous interest in the style of cruising. I'd say it's really become, or it's hit its stride in the past couple years, and look, people they want to go to new places, right? They want to go, they're more active. They want to do active excursions. They want to see incredible wildlife and expedition cruising can take you to some of the most remote, remote corners of the world. I mean, I was talking earlier on the show and I, I've subsequently been corrected. You know, I first started thinking what it was like 800 ports that Silver Sea goes to and that was 900. I learned it's a thousand plus. Right, I know it's incredible. As we were talking about earlier, the world's getting smaller. You got to get to new places. People that you know, they're more well traveled than ever before. And I think what's really interesting about this is that you know we're seeing, first of all, people are living longer than ever before. The boomers want to; they're still active. They want to oh, yeah. get out. They want to do hiking. They want to see this incredible wildlife. And so you you know they're going to. Antarctica, and they're doing it three or four times. You know, this isn't like a one-time thing. You know, people talk about bucket list destinations and bucket list travel. But this is not a bucket list no, destination. No, it's, it's a, it's a, a lifestyle. List, it's experience. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. It's a choice. And people, you know, we've got people on the ship who have done, you know, plenty of uh, 200 plus days of expedition cruising. Well, I, I talked to a woman today who's 93 years old yeah. who's riding around on motorcycles in the Philippines. Right, exactly. I mean, that's that's amazing to hear about. These stories are great. I think Silver Sea's doing a great job. Look, they've got, you know, they're growing their fleet. We're going to see a lot of new ships in the market in the coming years. So we've been talking about that and, you know, people feel com- the cruise lines feel confident that they're going to fill those ships too. You know, it's funny. When my mom turned 80, this was many years ago, I thought of what I should do to make her happy for her birthday, and I booked her a cruise to Hawaii. Her initial response was, I don't want to be on a ship with a lot of old people, because she didn't perceive herself as 80 as old. And she went, had a great time, but the point is, a statistic that completely floored me recently, but it's true, 80% of all the people who have ever reached the age of 80 are alive today. Right. Oh, that's a. Pr- I, I've never heard that stuff. That's a pretty amazing. I mean, look, it's a state of age is a state of mind, right? And and what we're. I seeing, remind myself that every it, day. No, it's true. I think what we're seeing now more than ever before. Again, people are more active. They're healthier. They're living longer. And, you know, now that they have the time on their hands, they want to enrich their lives with meaningful travel, purposeful travel, and and go to places that you know they just that really, 10, 20 years ago, it just wasn't even possible to go to. But I think what we've seen is is a sea change. All pun intended. Yeah. A sea change 
in the way they approach it. It's not about ticking off a box or saying, right. oh, yeah, I've been to 138 countries. Aren't no, I great? No, no, no. It has nothing to do with like trying to win the Guinness Book. No, I don't think it's about that. I think there are two things. One, um, you know, a lot of these people, most of these people, they've been, I mean, they're incredibly well-traveled, right? So it's, again, it's not about ticking off a place. It's about coming home with a memory. I think it's about making personal connections on the ground. You know, they talk about people choose Silver Sea or they, they're loyal to one cruise brand in particular sometimes just because of the staff. They love right. they love interacting with people on the ship. I think it's about making personal connections and staying, you know, staying fit and healthy. Well, We talk about wellness travel all the time at Travel and Leisure and Departures. People, you know, they, they want to, um, they're more fit at home now than ever before and they want to take that with them on the road. So why not do a four-hour hike? It's not the, you know, the stereotype of cruising and sitting around and doing the buffets and just lounging by the pool. That's, that's really shifted. That's not what it is anymore. And it's no longer just about proving physical endurance or how healthy you are. I actually think it's proving how engaged you are. Sure, um, for sure. I remember I took my mom on a cruise. I didn't send her one. I took her on one from Kobe all the way through the Yellow Sea to China, through the Inland Sea of Japan. Mm. And when we got to Nagasaki, she met a woman who was an atomic bomb survivor, and they became lifelong friends. That's amazing. I mean, and they stayed in touch. My mother was the queen of the handheld, of the handwritten letter, yeah. you know, and, and that's what it did. But it took that trip to do it. Yeah. So when people are saying they're looking for authenticity and genuine and in some cases curated uh, travel experience, yeah. it's more than just landing and going and buying a T-shirt and a hat anymore. 1,000%. The other thing that I think is really what cruise lines have been doing in the past few years is really upping their game when it comes to bringing guest lecturers on and people who are experts in their field because, you know, their they're, they're customers and their clients, they want to learn from these folks. We've, we've been talking a little bit as I've been on the ship about also the multi-generational trend in travel. And so you're seeing large family groups get on cruise ships. And it's, it's a brilliant way to travel, really, for a couple reasons. One, everybody can find their own space on the ship. They can do their own thing. They only get together for mealtime so they can sit at the same table yep. and make fun of all the other people on the ship. That is that is indeed true. And then, and then you know, it's a great way for families to bond. You know, you're seeing the grandparents take the kids, the grandkids on these, yeah. these really enriching vacations. So I, I think it's an interesting thing that we're only going to see ex- expand over the next five, ten years. Everybody's talking about it. Well, more than just talking about it, I have a theory about this. Tell me if you think I'm right. Okay. I th- and I've seen it happen once before. I saw it happen in 2008 and 2009, and now it's 10 years later, I'm seeing it again. It's a sort of last supper mentality where families get together and say, you know, if we don't go now, we're never going to go. And and they, they do it almost out of desperation saying, now, yeah. I'm not going to wait because yeah. who knows, you know, knows. we live in very uncertain times and who knows. So and that's where I see all this coming from. I you're I think you're right. I think the other thing too is, and I think it really came out of the the last recession. Is that you know, people really started to value experiences over things. We were talking about this earlier. You know, does it buying a new handbag excite people anymore? Maybe for some, but I think the vast majority are looking at the discretionary income that they have and they're willing to spend it on travel because they know they're going to come away with a memory. They're taking the grandkids and their kids on a vacation. It's like a it's an investment in their yeah. in their education. Well, I saw something the other day that I was traveling through a major international air- airport at a major crunch time, uh, you know, push time, yeah. thousands of passengers going through. And of course, if you know how they design duty-free stores these days, you, you got to go through the, got to run the gauntlet before you get to your gate. Right. So you're going through the duty-free store and there is this humongous uh, square footage displays of probably 12 to 14 different watchmakers, mm. all heavily branded, signage, beautiful, blah, 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 completely empty. Nobody's buying watches anymore. You know, I how many wrists do I own, right? I mean, you get to a point where you say, really? And 
most of the people who work for me don't have a watch. They're, they're telling time on the phone. On the phone. They don't, they're not wearing it as a statement. They're not wearing it as fashion. They're not wearing it as a function. They, in fact, they're not wearing it. Right. And last year, the, the watch industry, they actually bought back $240 million of product and took it off the shelves because it wasn't selling. They took it back to Switzerland. And so where is that potential income or from yeah. them going? It's going to experience now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny with when watches. I love my watch. I've had it for years, and it's like, it's to me, it's Are like Are you wearing an it right now? I'm wearing it right oh, okay, now. Okay. I'll never give it up. But I will say, I think... Wait, wait you somebody know, gave people, it to you or you bought it? Somebody gave it to there me you go. as a gift. It always hold a special memory for that reason. But I think what I think what's really key, right? By is the way, that, I just looked at that watch. Yeah. I know what it is. Yeah. I, I've always wanted one. Should I say what it is? <laughs> it's a Santos, isn't it? No, uh, it it's is a Cartier a, it's a, Santos? Yeah, it's a uh, tank. Oh, it is? Yeah, okay. there we but, go. But it's a Cartier. Yes. But it I was a it. gift and, you know, I'll, I'll always remember the memory. So that's... I, but I think that's right. That the two, the trend that we're seeing either in fashion or in um, or in travel is it's about the memory that you take away from the thing and where the money is going. Should you should get some value out of it? It's a, it's about creating a, a memory, a powerful memory that you're going to have with you for the rest of your life. Right. Of course, the unspoken addition of that sentence that Jackie didn't tell you is the, is what you know what she said to the person after the person gave it to her. That's really lovely. Let's go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> on a trip no it's look I think it's so travels just change so much it's changing all the time and it's ex- I think it's exciting I mean you look at the power of social media they're able to pick their vacation destinations just by looking at a photo and being inspired well that's the other difference the photos that they're looking at are going to end brochures as we know them thank you very much because people post their own photos and it's more real it's like look right. what I just did or look where I just was right. and look what I just experienced as opposed to some brochure in a rack at a travel agent store I mean who cares people about people are yeah. spot responding to this like it's an, I hate that word authentic but you know what I mean it's yeah. like this this real this very off the cuff messaging if yeah. and if like if you say that if you know they trust you and and you're you know I look at what my friends post I, I love my friends I trust my friends I trust their judgment and if I see that they're going to this amazing place well that makes me want to go even more so it's everything's shifting you so know. basically you're running your own trip advisor I'm running <laughs> I mean really that's what trip advisor started out as it's well I think I look I mean I have friends who literally well I mean they retravel and leisure religious and they go by and they read what we say, but they also look at Instagram. They look at our Instagram. They look at, you know, they look at my personal Instagram. I got a message from a friend yesterday being like, hey, I just saw you were in London. We were just there and we also love the rose. You know, it's, it's, that just didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. This sort of instant communication, it makes it on the one hand really fun. It also makes it challenging when you're actually in a destination. And something we talk about a lot is the difference between being present and enjoying the trip and also being tied to your phone and feeling like you have to document yeah, this you know this don't trip. get me started on that yeah <laughs> if you're listening to the show right now and you're planning a trip i'm going to give you permission to spend 10 minutes taking a photograph and then i'm going to come get that phone and throw it away right. because otherwise you're not curious you're not interested you're not looking around you're just trying to document you know a lot of it's ego one thousand percent ego yeah. and it's also you know there's you reach this moment even even here on the ship when we were all sailing under the Tower Bridge and I'm trying to take pictures and it's also, you know, I'm here for work, but it's also like, look, the reality is, why don't I just look at the bridge and enjoy where I am and not feel like I have to do it through the lens of this device? You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.